0: Welcome to The Aesthetic City Podcast. In this show, we aim to discover how to go forward and create a more livable, beautiful and healthy built environment. I'm Ruben Hansen, your host and founder of The Aesthetic City. Today's guest is a renowned Greek-American mathematician and urban theorist who has made significant contributions to the field of architecture and urban design. He has published several influential books and articles advocating for traditional and human-scale architecture while critiquing modernist and postmodernist approaches. As an expert in the application of complexity theory and information theory to the built environment, our guest collaborates with architects and urban planners worldwide to promote scientifically grounded, sustainable, and human-oriented design. Notably, he has worked closely with esteemed architect and urban planner Christopher Alexander, developing innovative ideas and approaches to urban planning that emphasize human-centric, adaptive, and resilient design. So, please welcome Professor Nikos Salingeros. Welcome, Professor Salingeros.
1: Hello, Ruben. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Yeah, really wonderful to have you here. So, as I told in the introduction a little bit, you are a distinguished scientist with a background in mathematics, physics, but you pivoted to work on architecture and urbanism at some point in your career. And Could you perhaps tell me why and how you became interested in architecture and urban theory coming from mathematics and physics?
1: It's a long story, and it could take up the whole, the whole discussion, <laughs> and it will not leave time to discuss the important things about the qualities of architecture. But essentially, uh, it was my meeting with Christopher Alexander. I had read his work, and uh, I, was, I happened to be at Berkeley to visit one of my students, and I, I went up. I, I arranged a meeting with uh, Christopher, and then uh, we mm-hmm. hit it off immediately because, uh, as you know, he was also trained as a physicist a mathematician. Yeah. So he was uh, in the process of uh, working on the nature of order, and uh, because we agreed so well on many things, uh, he uh, he asked me to uh, be uh, the main editor of the nature of order. So I worked with him for twenty five years on, on, on the nature of order editing. Yeah. And uh, that was so fascinating to me. It slowly, at first, it was just a fun and wonderful intellectual exercise for me uh, but then it just completely overtook me so i i stopped doing wh- what i was doing and started to devote my research to architecture that's that's a short answer
0: yeah yeah and uh, you work towards your own you did a lot of publications and, and they all became the work uh, a theory of architecture how did that process go to come there and what's what are some of the most important findings in that book and things that people are still overlooking
1: Well, but people are mostly overlooking all of it. Um, (laughs) Trained as a physicist and mathematician, I systematically wanted to discover what the basis for healthy design is. I'm I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't do medical experiments, but uh, I could uh, gather the data and see what mathematical configurations corresponded with uh, healing environments uh, environments that people fe- feel healthy in people uh, uh, environments um, that uh, are uh, are attractive people go out of their way to um, to experience and, and this is essentially uh, what Christopher Alexander did all his life he did the pattern language which essentially do- discovers and documents the geometrical environments and how they interact with social, um, reactions of the inhabitants yeah. so that the inhabitants feel their best and their life is most enhanced in such environments. And he, he extracted these and documented them in a scientific way. Yeah, And uh, I, I had a very different approach uh, to the same problem, solving exactly the same problem, how to discover and document uh, general rules. And uh, these are what architects misunderstand, totally misunderstand. This has mm-hmm. nothing to do with styles. Architects are so hung up on style. This has nothing to do with styles. It has to do with geometry. It has to do with color. And it has to do with neuroscience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And those elements, yeah, it's more about design principles than styles.
1: Exactly. It is, yeah. it is all about principles.
0: Yeah. So... Christopher Alexander's work has been, well, published for a very long time now, I think over 40 years um, or around that time. And it's still... Yeah, the pattern language is
1: 1977, the Nature of Order, the four volume. Nature of Order was published in 2001 and 2005.
0: Yeah, because it's still... I didn't hear from it when I was studying urban design back in the day in, in Delft. And now I'm kind of flabbergasted why... That book had to reach me through like a a different way. Why wasn't it like a Bible sitting everywhere you could look in the faculty? Because it's so important. I read The Timeless Way of Building and I have the the pattern language and I've kind of looked through it a lot of times. I haven't really fully read it, but scanned through it a lot of times. And it's such a useful way of thinking about how to design cities, but still it's not there. Do you know why that is? Is there like a boycott or what has happened?
1: Ruben, to get the answer, you have to ask your professors, your old professors. <laughs> I was on the faculty at Delft for five yep. years, and I would go every oh, summer, wow. and I had three PhD students at Delft. And mm-hmm. uh, my little department, which was headed by the late Paul Drover, was mm-hmm. very uh, much in touch with uh, Christopher Alexander's ideas. But uh, the department, after Paul Drover retired and died, the department was disbanded, so I'm no longer on the faculty. Yeah. So, Uh, this was not, of course, as you say, this was not the mainstream. It was never in the mainstream. Paul Drover's department uh, embraced these ideas while that small department of urbanism was a subset of urbanism. And uh, it it was temporary because the other faculty had no interest in those things.
0: Yeah. Do you see... A larger group of people now finally embracing it and or or is it still uh very small is there any change is there anything yeah
1: no there's been no change it is still the work of christopher alexander is still marginalized in the in academia architectural academia is not interested in the work of christopher alexander not in the pattern language and not in the nature of order architectural academia is not interested in my work
0: no which yeah. is
1: separate from Christopher Alexander's and you know now I'm getting a little older and you know I'm, I'm accumulating books and hundreds of, of research articles and lectures. All that all that material is of no interest to architectural academia and therefore it is not taught.
0: Yeah. How, because how was your book received when it was published A the theory of Architecture? And is there, is there any selection of architects using it apart from the well, let's say traditional architects?
1: It is, it is uh, highly regarded by people on the margins. Yeah. And occasionally a student will, it is the, the younger generation, occasionally a student will discover it by accident because it's not mentioned by their, by their professors. And yeah. then they will contact me and tell me how much they enjoy, how much they have learned from, from all my books. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, um, you know, I'm, I have PhD students all over the world continuously because yeah. um uh, it is usually at the phd level that uh, a student can appreciate uh, what is happening and yeah. then they want to write a thesis and uh, they ask their thesis advisor can we ask uh, christopher alexander or or uh, nico Salingaros to be on our committee to help us well you know poor christopher died a few months ago
0: yeah
1: so um you know, I'm invited, and if the thesis advisor uh, agrees to it, then, then I can help that student yeah. uh,
0: uh,
1: uh, by email and by Zoom. And so I have students all over the world. Uh, but, but this has to come, this always invariably comes from from that particular student discovering the work yeah. of Alexander, myself, and, and all, my, all our other colleagues who are working on, on similar uh, topics, and then they, uh, they take the trouble yeah. to um, to contact us and learn this material and and, uh, and get the um, accreditation. Now, I have to say also something very negative. I have, in 50% of those cases, the ending is not good because the student goes to the thesis advisor and says, I want to do a thesis on this topic, and I would like to ask Professor Salingaros or someone else from our friends, and the professor says, absolutely not. We don't like wow. this stuff. This stuff is forbidden at the university. If you if you <laughs> wow. you want to do yeah. this, get out. Go to a different university. Highly discouraging. And then the poor student writes me. Yeah, a, a very unhappy email. So, you know, just saying this happened, and I'm shocked that you know my student will not allow me to to invite you to be my thesis or to write a thesis on this topic and mention the work of Christopher Alexander. This is yeah. highly unprofessional, but, you know, I need to tell you, this happens in 50% of the cases.
0: Yeah, that's a staggering large amount. And is there s- specific universities or countries where there is more, where it is rejected more harshly? Or is it random and depends on the professor or the faculty?
1: It depends on the professor and the faculty. Yeah. And, and this is uh, universal. Okay, the hostility mm-hmm. is universal. Yeah. Universities in Indonesia, Australia, <laughs> Brazil, yeah. the United States, uh, France. The hostility is universal. And also the the discovery is universal because students all over the world discover this independently, uh, discover this work, and then they, uh, they can write me or they, they write uh, to, to my colleagues.
0: Yeah.
1: And they have... so. Um, we would be remiss not to mention the two or three um, places that you can actually learn this stuff that is the building beauty program mm-hmm. run by Alexander's older students and friends. And that's a master's program that's um, that's given yeah. every year. It's very recent. So students uh, can um, can sign up to 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 learn the nature of order. Yeah, it's a yeah. small program that's rapidly growing. Yeah. Uh, and there are other, uh, uh, but these are independent programs. There is the uh, Table Ronde in, in Belgium that's yep. starting, it's giving summer workshops. So this is, uh, um, there are some programs in the United Kingdom. So th- these are beginnings, but yep. these are not associated with the, the main universities. Uh, no. we, we, start, we tried to start a program in India, we got um, a, a curriculum using uh, neuroscience architecture and patterns uh, and the neuroscience approved by the uh, coordinator, by the coordinator of architectural education. It has been approved, but uh, none of the mm-hmm. universities are implementing it, even though they have approval.
0: Wow, yeah, that's incredible. Because I find it interesting because your work, in my view, creates a link between, well, mathematical, constructs like like fractals and the way nature operates and the way we perceive and, and enjoy and live in buildings and the health stems from buildings being adapted to these fractal systems to our biological nature. Is is that kind of correct or is that to
1: This is spot on, as we say in
0: the United States. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Because that is, yeah, I think just from a physics point of view, just from a first principles point of view, it is absurd that this link is not being researched in universities, which should be serious about the deeper fundamental layers of of why we perceive buildings like we do, and to see that, (laughs) that it is being banned and being shunned is, it's, it's, completely, it's crazy.
1: (laughs) No, no, it's not, Ruben. Your question contains the answer. Architecture, practice and education has for almost a century proposed the basic dogma that humans are not part of nature. And that therefore architecture for humans has nothing to do with nature. That humans are not biological beings. Humans don't uh, have no emotions. They don't sleep. They don't eat. They don't urinate. They are just uh, machines. Okay. Not yeah. even insects. They are machines. And therefore, uh, architecture should be to house machines, you know, little glass boxes that you put machines in and put a number on them.
0: Yeah. The, to, to just achieve some perfect efficiency because we are we we should be rational agents that always uh behave rationally but of course we aren't <laughs> if yes, we know but anything but about but humans but look
1: look yeah. look you may complain all you want to but how did such a crazy destructive unnatural idea take over the entire world because this is the entire world yeah After a century, because society allowed it to, society welcomed it, society swallowed all the lies and propaganda of the building industry and architectural lunatics who sell their crazy buildings because uh, there is a client that pays for the crazy building. Society has to approve the, the building laws of a particular city, have to approve a crazy, inhuman, sadistic building. They do it. Society has accepted this. This is not a spontaneous phenomenon. It is our society that has embraced this unnatural, unhealthy, suicidal craziness.
0: Yeah. So if our society has embraced this, then we need to look a bit more closely at society. What influences in philosophy and thought do you think have made, because you have, for example, criticized ideas of Jacques Derrida, and deconstructivism in architecture, and well, the relation between those um, might be might exist. I mean, what what uh, what do you think has happened in society that we have come to this point?
1: Well, Jacques Derrida has nothing to do with architecture. Society made him a great philosopher, even though he was spouting nonsense. He was a confidence artist, a con artist. Okay, but that's in philosophy. It's nothing to do with architecture. So he made a career out of spouting nonsense and he enjoyed his life. You know, I I don't blame him because uh, philosophers usually do no harm. But people believe this nonsense even though you cannot read it. Now, the, the architects who had sadistic impulses intuitively designed buildings that are sadistic. And they thought, well... Oh, look at this stuff by Derrida. Maybe I can use it to explain why my buildings look so sadistic. Of course, they don't use the term sadistic. So so they took the stuff from Derrida (laughs) and they say this applies to deconstructivist architecture. Well, it's it's all baloney. It has nothing to do with, with the structure. The structure is generated by a sadistic mind that wants to do harm to other human beings. It is an expression of evil. You take form apart, natural form that is highly ordered and complex, and you tear it up. And then you create the building that expresses this tearing up of the form. This is anti natural, anti biology, anti human.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of creating, yeah, showcasing destruction in a way.
1: Yeah, so they say, well, it's convenient. I'm going to use this cr- this crazy French philosopher to explain the buildings. Well, it's just a bit of propaganda. You know, it's like uh, uh, somebody selling you junk food and then they, they say they use some, f- they can use Heidegger to explain the junk food. It's, yeah. It makes no sense. But, but again, I come back to the fundamental complaint. Society has accepted all this nonsense and society has accepted the, nonsensical explanation using derrida for sadistic buildings
0: yeah and i would also think other postmodern thinkers probably or yes yes yeah deconstructivism is one of the later manifestations of modernism and and what about early modernism let's say let's go back to the times of the bauhaus of what are your views on how that formed and could there have been like a path in the right direction or was that hopeless from the beginning?
1: To me, the Bauhaus was hopeless from the beginning because it was mm-hmm. a reaction. It was a um, a reaction against all traditional architecture. And it was made possible yep. by the um, political ideological thinking of the times. Germany in the 1920s. We're talking about the Nazi party coming to power. We're talking about the communists fighting in the streets. They both had the same objective, to destroy traditional society in order to take over with a totalitarian system. Both the communists in Germany and the Nazis in Germany in the 1920s leading into the 1930s had the same goal. And, of course, they were fighting each other because it was not clear who will win. These Mm -hmm. ideas came into the Bauhaus. Destroy the old world, destroy old architecture, in order to create a new world that will be perfect but the new world is inhuman you know look at the the original Bauhaus designs they're not human they're just blank
0: yeah perhaps moving to that subject of uh, well the the blankness of their designs because that is what we still see Um, the funny thing is like the, the minimalist aesthetic has survived all these years even though it has mutated in in different styles so that now we have the parametricism before we had the deconstructivism but they all have this minimalist aesthetic and as an expert in mathematics and architecture and knowing all these mathematical concepts like fractals what is it about the minimalist aesthetic that is so problematic
1: (laughs) because it contradicts the geometry of nature Nature has two main characteristics in its geometry. It is fractal. If the readers don't know what a fractal is, it's something that has complex structure at every magnification. So like a tree, like a bush, like a cauliflower, even like single leaf. So you keep magnified and you get more complex structure. That's one part. The other part, just as important, is nested symmetries. So Mm -hmm. there are complex symmetries, that unify the whole it's not random, so you have the symmetries and they co- cooperate with fractals so that you have a fractal combined with symmetries. Mm-hmm. But when I'm talking about fractals combined with symmetries, I'm not talking about overall symmetry. I'm talking about a thousand different symmetries, smaller and smaller scale, and they all link to each other. Yeah, and then you get organized complexity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's what we learn from nature. So yeah. If you, like me, finally agree that the human body is part of nature, that we <laughs> evolved in order to get information yeah. from fractal and complex uh, symmetrical systems. Yeah, The blankness rejects that and makes us feel anxious. So whether the blankness is the blank wall of the Bauhaus or mm-hmm. the curved, twisted, blank wall of deconstructivist is the same, it's the same thing.
0: Yeah yeah
1: it is yeah. unnatural and it is specifically uh, the architects are taught to react to their own body by creating something unnatural. That's why minimalism has arrived because they're taught to create something unnatural.
0: We're already talking a little bit about the, the biggest well, mistakes being made in how we build today. So, of course, so it's the minimalist aesthetic. It's not respecting our biological needs. What other mistakes could you identify?
1: There's a mistake in every possible um, component of the building, of the, of the siting of the building, of the uh, structure of the urban space. Everything is wrong. Yeah. Now, th- that sounds crazy to, to a reader, <laughs> but it is the intention. Because what came out of the Bauhaus? To take something, to take everything from the traditional and then to invert it, to break it. So mm-hmm. they broke everything. They didn't just take one component and break it. They broke all the components. And we have inherited those because after the Second World War, modernist trained architect and urbanists took power and change all the laws. So today it's imp- it's impossible. It's illegal in o- almost all over the world to build something that has humanity in it, because it violates the codes. And who wrote the codes? The Modernist trained architects in the 1950s and 60s.
0: Yeah.
1: So uh, let me be more specific, otherwise uh, your uh, your listeners mm-hmm. will think that I'm um, crazy. You have the structure of the city, which has to have a pedestrian component. Well, all the new cities now have no pedestrian component. They're made for fast-moving traffic, vehicular traffic. And that's thanks to General Motors in the 1950s that changed the laws and, and bribed all the, uh, all the politicians to change the laws so they could sell millions of cars. Okay, But the same laws have been uh, adopted by Brazil and Malaysia and then New Zealand. It's the same thing that has destroyed the city because there is no, the new part of the city, there is no pedestrian um, part that that links to the vehicular traffic. And then the sighting of the buildings that create some urban space. There is no urban space. You have uh, uh, new urban plazas that are built that are just horrible. Mm -hmm. You don't even want to walk in them because visually they're unattractive. They're repulsive. The design is made repulsive by yep. copying certain prototypes. But, but those prototypes are physically repulsive. Um, uh, you know, you talk to Anne Sussman and she will do the eye tracking and show you that you don't want to be there. Uh, the, the, the human organism reacts with threat. It feels threatened. It doesn't want to enter this urban space. Yet cities consistently build urban places. Yep. And then you have the facade of the building that is, that is threatening. And then you have the interior of the building. You have the entrance. You cannot find the entrance. And then you have the interior that is threatening. And then you have office spaces that, that are cramped and, and horrible without either too much light full of glare or you have not enough light and you have low ceilings. Why do you want the yeah. low ceilings? Okay, yeah. the building industry in the 1950s. Le Corbusier... Mm-hmm bullied the Minister of, of, uh, of Construction in, in France to lower the, uh, the maximum height of the ceilings. It was in the Constitutional Building Law in France that you, you had the minimum ceiling height that was wow. good for human beings. And Le Corbusier bullied the, the minister to, to erase this so he could lower the ceilings. And the constructor said, wow, you know, I can add another story. In a five-story building, if I can squeeze the building, the ceiling, so it almost touches the person's head, I can add another story and make an enormous amount of money. Yeah. And who cares about the, the feelings of the, of, the, uh, of the resident?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I always feel in space with higher ceilings, I feel more inspired. I feel, uh, well, better I think that is a interesting thing because it has happened all over the world. Like a lot of houses have standard, low ceilings. And when you enter older buildings, they're often way taller. I think it's also good for ventilation, but especially just the mental effect is really interesting.
1: What modernism, postmodernism and dominant architecture did after the war was to totally ignore the mental reactions of the user, treat the user as a machine, not even an insect, because even an insect has some feelings, a machine, an inanimate machine to be packed into the smallest possible space. Yeah. Yeah. And those became standards now. You see, the the, the bad thing is uh, is not that some crazy people propose something, but that politicians adopted these uh, standards. And it makes money for the construction company. So the construction companies and the developers make say they can make ten million dollars more by creating yeah. inhuman environments. Yeah. Well, they don't care. They just they make the ten million dollars.
0: Yeah. And uh, I think the turning around the construction norms and the industry is going to be one of the toughest things. It would require the change of laws, it would also require to Um, set up a new industry because the old one has been replaced. Well,
1: it it is both uh, easy to do uh, if the people insist on it, but the people are not insisting on it. It it is easier for the construction industry to spend money on propaganda to brainwash the people that these, these inhuman environments are good for them. Why are they good for them? Because they're modern. Okay, yeah. if you live in Bolivia, all you need to say is is have some TV ads and say, "Look, this is modern because they do this in 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 United States in Los Angeles. This is the latest fashion, you yeah. know." And people will will buy any garbage if you give that message. This is yeah. modern. This is the latest thing. They do this in Los Angeles. They do this. You know, the film stars in Hollywood mm-hmm. have a room that has a seven foot ceiling. So you know, so that you can bump your head on the on the ceiling on the. On the uh, on the ceiling of of your bedroom. Propaganda propaganda is a better investment for the construction companies uh, rather than to satisfy the biological and physiological needs of the users. Mm -hmm. And the users accept it. Like the, uh, the users accept it in the free world, just like citizens in North Korea accept their government. Yeah. They don't dare to protest.
0: Only how do we get out of this rut? What, is, what would be first steps to provide an alternative? Thinkers like you, but also other architects have proposed alternative ways, Leon Krier, but what is the first step to achieving that and what would be required, in your opinion?
1: Okay, uh, you answered your own question. The first step is education, to let the people... Interested people know that there is an alternative way to design, that it is practical, efficient, not expensive, that we have all the techniques ready, that buildings, beautiful human buildings are being built today that you never see in the architecture magazines. Yeah. And what you are doing is you are publicizing this information that is otherwise not known people so that is the first step and you're doing it and congratulations to you Ruben Thank for you. taking the first <laughs> step now if you ask me about the second step that's the difficult one the yeah. first step you are helping in taking the first step the second step is is much more difficult and I don't know what it's going to be
0: yeah that's. Uh, I think that's a question I uh, hope the listener will also help thinking about because that's uh, that's also the, one of the reasons for this podcast um,
1: Yeah, but Ruben let me interject something mm-hmm. If a reader today asks in general, why don't we have beautiful buildings? The standard answer is because they're not modern. What do you mean by modern? Well, it's going to the past, and the past was horrible, and you know the past was uh, fascism and wars. And today is gorgeous and beautiful, and we have medical health, and everyone is wealthy, and. You know, but wait a minute, you know, people were, some people were were healthy and and happy in the past, too. And and, and so, and the person says, you know, I enjoy to go to the old part of town and I really feel good there. No, 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 we cannot uh, ever uh, build something like that today. Why? It's forbidden because it it has links with the past and the wars and and dictatorships and and monarchies. Uh, and, And anyway, even if you wanted to, it's impossible to do that today. Okay, that's the biggest lie. Because as you know very well, all over the world in select places under the radar, architects today are building wonderful traditional-looking buildings or very avant-garde buildings that are on the human scale, like Alexandrian buildings that don't look like classical buildings. Okay, yeah. they are look they have this sort of traditional niceness, they feel. Comfortable. They have the right dimensions. They have, you know, they have color ornamentation. But the 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 dogma from the reigning architectural culture says this cannot be built today. How about ten thousand buildings that have been built exactly in this way that are wonderful and human, and, and we really like to 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 be there and live in them? No, no, they don't exist. But, <laughs> but, do but exist. the people. The people believe this. This is the propaganda and it is a totalitarian propaganda. I'm telling you, to understand what's happening in architecture, look at North Korea.
0: Yeah. It's kind of a complete lack of information, uh, a complete lack of yeah truth. Yes. Uh, let's move on to a next question perhaps um, because there are some interesting changes happening now with the r- rapid rise of artificial intelligence. And you have written a paper on it some time ago quite recently actually uh what are according to you the most mind-blowing developments in artificial intelligence
1: yes the, there are two aspects of artificial intelligence one is uh, verbal and the other one is visual mm-hmm. well my colleagues and i used all the uh, drawing programs yeah. various drawing programs that are text to image namely you describe and this is the description Show me a beautiful building. Mm-hmm. So, there are about six or seven programs based on artificial intelligence that either give you a, a photorealistic rendering of what you ask, or they have a, a, a painting of what you ask. Yeah. So, we did that with all the existing programs. And what do we get? We get a traditional looking building, <laughs> either a classical or very vernacular, you know, lots of color ornamentation or Art Nouveau. So this tells us that the artificial intelligence, which is based on tens of billions of data gathered from the Internet, is giving us what is beautiful. And it's the opposite of what the architects tell us is beautiful. And we also did the opposite experiment. We asked for a depressing, ugly building. And what (laughs) do we get? We get a modernist concrete block, or we get a glass building, or we get a deconstructivist twisted building. Yeah. These are the ugly, depressing, uh, ugly, op- depressing and oppressive buildings. So this is exactly what the, the human body feels. So this validates what my friends and I have been saying all along, going back to Christopher Alexander and the pattern language. It validates it with, with tens of billions of data and totally discredits what the architectural establishment has been trying to push on the population. Yeah, this is a revolution to me. Okay, uh, we have we have just published two papers. People have not read them yet, but you know they're there. Now, if we want to go to the verbal, we have a new paper that's unpublished. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. ask, we asked Chat GPT, the artificial yeah. intelligence uh, that writes an essay. We asked, please describe the characteristics of architecture that denies humanity, that denies life, that tries to do harm to the user. What are the geometrical characteristics? Oh, we also add that, 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 that is against God, you know, to see what. <laughs> so we got a list of 10 characteristics that describe perfectly contemporary architecture.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's, um, it's really funny if it weren't so sad
1: <laughs> it, it is sad and, and and astonishing you know we didn't ask it to describe contemporary architecture style we asked it to describe the worst possible intentional geometries and, yeah. and it gave us a description of contemporary architectural styles
0: yeah 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 i uh i almost fear for the um for the fact that they can filter answers and and uh, kind of insert a layer between the, the the algorithm and the user, because when you ask for um, for things that are against the the guidelines, like the what is it the the user uh, uh, user agreement, then it will kind of filter those out. And I'm I'm afraid for the moment when they will see, oh, these answers are not what we wanted to say, and uh, because that is the type of things that already happening, like when you ask for, um, well, let's say a poem about a sp- uh, specific person in, in politics, it will do it. And if you ask to for a poem about a person from the other spectrum of the, uh, yeah, from the other side of the political spectrum, it will not do it. So those kinds of filter, um, yeah, this kind of filtering, I'm afraid it will also happen in, in, uh, <laughs> in this program at some point. But I think for architecture, we're, we're safe for the moment. Uh, but well, yeah.
1: we're safe for the moment, but you have to be intelligent to ask it a question that it can answer honestly. Yeah. If you ask it the wrong question that refers to architectural literature, there is so much misinformation already on the web. Mm-hmm. that the the uh, the artificial intelligence program will pick up some of that disinformation and give it back to you so you have to be very clever in asking it in a way that it will be totally honest
0: yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah that, that really constructs its own answer in, instead of just taking from sources exactly yeah yeah what 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 do you think is where where's this going and what where do you hope this is going
1: well, my hope is your hope that the people will wake up eventually to the inhuman architecture. Uh, they will insist on new buildings being made uh, in a totally different manner. Uh, they will uh, 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 force their politicians, their elected representatives, to to uh, not to approve inhuman buildings, but to approve buildings that are on the human scale by architects who know how to create. The human scale, and leave the the vast number of inhuman architects that are now uh, prized and and uh, um, praised all over the world. Just leave them on the side because they are incapable of giving a human product. You know they yeah. can retire. Um, it's uh, elected representatives must be held responsible for what is happening. Yeah, it is the citizens that uh, should uh, be should wake up to what has been happening. Demand a more human environment. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't worry about the construction firms for the following reason. As soon as the construction firm realize that the game is up, they can no longer build inhuman buildings. They just change and they build human buildings and they're going to make the same profit. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: They're not going to lose the profit. They are very resistant to it because they have everything set up. To build glass boxes, you know, and, and horrible things, you know, with, with, with sheet metal, titanium, uh, sheet walls, and everything. You know, it's, it's convenient for them just to have keep producing the same uh, inhuman buildings. But if they're forced to by legislation, it will be a, they will have to retool. Yeah. But then they will continue to make the same profit because we will still need to be building and rebuilding. Uh, buildings so so, um, after that transition everything will be fine again
0: yeah yeah and um so and and the designing profession um because there will be programs that will design facades i think it's only a matter of time before you will there will be programs that are specifically designed for architects to design uh yeah design facades to even detail uh I really expect that there will be a tool where you can just push a button and it will just generate plans and sections and details for exactly the type of building you need. What do you think the effects will be of this, perhaps even democratization of architecture on the whole field? Because if you can make a building with only one press on a button, you might not even need an architect anymore.
1: Well, that's going to happen regardless. We have programs now that are abused by the architectural establishment to generate inhuman buildings through AI software. Yeah. What I want to see is the alternative. AI software that will generate human buildings. Mm -hmm. That is possible. However, I I don't believe that these uh, design programs will take over because you still need a human being to put things together. Yeah. And you will need more human beings to help with human-scale buildings, because there are more factors involved. See, an inhuman building has only three, three uh, qualities that you program in, and then you get something, and then you build it. You don't care how the humans react. What, but a human building, an adaptive building, the software will help you. It will give you, but then you have to make sure a human being has to make sure that the patterns, the the Alexandrian patterns are satisfied, Mm -hmm. that you have uh, nice sunlight, that the building fits nicely, that the the entrance is nice. So there are many more factors. So um, architects who want to have a job in the future will be employed building human buildings. Architects who are now churning out glass boxes, that's the end of their career for them. Because yeah. the AI program will, will replace them entirely because they're not needed.
0: Yeah, yeah. Don't you think it will, because it becomes very easy and kind of standard to make the typical glass boxes using these programs, that kind of the bar will be raised because of these programs for architects to say like, hey, uh, just people trying to get everything out of this and getting bored with the minimalist aesthetic and trying to see, hey, how can we use this to create better alternatives? Or is it still their the, the kind of um, frame of mind that will limit them in what they're going to produce with these tools?
1: Uh, Ruben, I, um, I approach this thinking very differently from you. Mm-hmm. Because I see power play. Power play will eventually decide. Not people getting bored because people have had a century to get bored with glass buildings and they're not. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and uh, uh, important pieces of the city still commission boring glass buildings. So it's uh, about yeah. I, I politics. With you. As well. yeah. it, it's a power play. Mm-hmm. If sufficient uh, powerful group, whether it's local citizens or politicians or uh, important spokespeople for a country's culture, to save his heritage, will speak out against this monotonous architecture and insist on human scale architecture. Then, then we will see some change. But, but not yeah. before, because a single mm-hmm. citizen could not do do much, cannot have much influence. Yeah. A group, a large group of citizens in a democracy can influence the electoral process.
0: Yeah, yeah, because that's the opportunity I see that people will use the, these new tools to create counter projects. And then garner support for that to go through the political way. Uh, because if you can show something and before they weren't able to just spit out a nice design for like a counterpart uh, counter project, but nowadays you can just literally type in, in mid journey, AI, a prompt for a nice building and you copy paste it on the place where they're going to build something ugly and you sh- show, Hey, look, this is also possible then, and you post it on social media and you get support for that I think that is the way perhaps how we can use these tools what do you think of that
1: I'm afraid I disagree with you (laughs) because because ever since the 1960s there have been counter projects human scale counter projects to many uh, projects especially in Europe say important signature museums and some of my friends you know the older generation Mm -hmm were involved and they produced for free at their own uh, using their own time for free they produced beautiful counter projects that were published in the newspapers nobody paid any attention yeah. because of the power play because the dominant power said this is garbage this this goes back to to traditional stuff which is uh tied with history tied with uh, the monarchy and fascism and all sorts of negative propaganda in order to, uh, to uh, ignore the truly human counter projects and to promote the uh, sadistic uh, dominant type of architecture, mm-hmm. which, which was funded and built. So it, it is not that, I, okay, the, the mid-journey makes things easier now because you can, you can produce a mid-journey image and then publish it on the web and then people will look at it. But the same thing happened in, in the past, uh, 10, 20, even 30 years ago. And it was ignored because of the power structure.
0: In Gothenburg in Sweden, uh, the, so in Sweden you have the architectural uprising and there's basically groups of hundreds of thousands of people on on Facebook groups and on Instagram. And they're constantly in the newspapers. And together they are criticizing what is getting built. And now they have finally political traction. And the city of Gothenburg in Sweden... They have a well political de- decree that they will build traditional buildings and this is really happening. this is really this has happened and it's also happening in Norway. So I think I think there are already uh, this is just the influence of social media which has happened but um, I don't know may- maybe like it, yeah because newspapers have a, a very high uh, bar but with social media and with just yeah Facebook groups, you can circumvent the, the old-fashioned media. So, um, yeah, what, what what would you say when, when you take that into account?
1: Yes, I, I'm, I'm very gratified to see that. Uh, the Architectural Uprising are my friends, and I visited them in yeah. Stockholm when I was awarded the Swedish Cultural Award for Architecture just before yeah. the COVID. And uh, they're doing wonderful things. And, of course, as you say, they have found that the social media completely overrides uh, the main newspapers that tend to um, stick by with the old modernist uh, uh, ingrained uh, dogma, mm-hmm. and uh, so they have done wonderful things. Uh, it's it's a beginning though, because also I I follow the architectural uprising, and yeah. they award the, the Casper Prize for the most <laughs> horrible architecture. And they have pages full of new buildings that have been uh, built in um, in Sweden and in Scandinavia that are just horrible. So the horrible buildings are still continued to be commissioned and approved by the highest levels of government. Yeah, in yeah. the most important and iconic places, historical places, in Scandinavia. So you yeah. know that's a disaster that has not changed and mm-hmm. i know that my friends the architectural uprising are trying to 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 wake up the public as as to what is happening but so far because the casper prize for horrible architecture is still being <laughs> shown every year it means that there's a lot of work to be done but it's yeah. done wonderful yeah. job.
0: but it's true that if that uprising would fail then there would be another generation of um bitter proponents of more human architecture who have been, um, yeah, <laughs> uh, if it were to fail, of course. Um, and that is still a possibility. I mean, they can still uh, ignore it, crush it, and just, uh, I think if nothing happens long enough and they can kind of evade the influence of this movement long enough, then nothing will happen and nothing will change. So, yeah, I, I do think it needs to grow. Otherwise, the flame might die. Um, but yeah, I'm hopeful.
1: Let me say reform comes in several stages. The zero stage is when nobody knows what's going on and everyone just accepts horrible inhuman glass buildings mm-hmm. in, in the middle of the historic cities in Scandinavia. Okay, we have gone past that because the architectural uprising now has tens of thousands of people and they communicate the message that wonderful. New architecture is possible today. And look, here are the examples built all over the world. And -hmm. instead of doing this garbage, we can have this. Please tell your elected representative that's what we want. Okay, that's the second stage. But the second stage is still not decisive because you can have hundreds of thousands of people protesting Mm -hmm. something. But the power center holds because it is supported by politics, Mm -hmm. corrupt politics and money you need to go to the third stage when you have some politicians who break away. And the politicians will say, you know, I'm going to go with with the uprising because it's good for the future of the country, you know.
0: Yeah, and I think that is a very crucial point, um, having politicians who actually listen to the people and not do their own way. Because that is something I see, unfortunately, in a lot of countries happening where uh, there's a very loud voice for change, But they're not listening
1: they can be uh, (laughs) listening to get away from scandinavia and go to uh, Mm -hmm. where i have many friends in latin america and in Mm -hmm. asia politicians can be listening and they will even uh, talk and say all the nice things and then uh, they go home and they receive a suitcase full of cash and they vote for some horrible horrible (laughs) building yeah that's the way business goes
0: yeah not sure if I see a easy solution for that, but the I think the change can start in, in less corrupt countries, perhaps. Maybe switching back to health and biophilia, because I think we haven't fully dived into it enough. For the people who haven't read your work and also your work with Anne Sussman, what would your top recommendations be to get more healthy and more pleasing living environments, and what role does biophilia play in that?
1: Yes, well, the best thing I can do is to give you a list of the components that make us yeah. healthier, because they, mm-hmm. in, they uh, react in the body. The body reacts to them and, and uh, has a uh, lower stress, which allows it to combat infections better and uh, uh, keeps, prevents autoimmune diseases that stress causes in the long term. So here, here are the components. First of all, sunlight. Real mm-hmm. sunlight, presence of animals and plants, not mm-hmm. threatening, you know, not lions, but <laughs> know, domestic animals, other human beings, again, not threatening. Like in a pedestrian plaza, you see other human beings in a not-threatening way. Lots of plants. Mm-hmm. When you go out of your of your of your house or your apartment to see some plants inside your apartment to have some plants, to be able to look out of your window and see some plants. And then the geometrical components. You need fractals around you, both inside and outside your your own house. And I already described those. You have a fractal, you approach it, and you get closer and closer, and you have some interesting structure. It's the opposite of minimalism, because minimalism, you see a blank wall, and you go... You go closer and closer, and there's nothing, and there's nothing, and there's nothing. Down to the microstructure, Mm -hmm. this is very important, because down to the microstructure, you go right up against the wall. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: If it is stone, polished stone, or wood, you see the fibers, and that contributes to the biophilic effect, because you're looking at... Because it used to be alive, okay? The wood used to be alive. Stone some stone, polished stone, um, is, is fossilized, fossilized the marine animals. So you have that, that beauty, that the visual information coming in. So that is the organized complexity that contains sub-symmetries. Now, you cannot get sub-symmetries for free, so most traditional architecture, you put in ornamentation and create symmetries. So you have symmetries, and you have, uh, you have uh, door frames and you have uh, window frames and you have mullions in the windows that subdivide the window so it's not totally blank.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All these are the design tools from earlier pre-modernist eras that resonate with the body. And uh, let me go back to your example of music. It resonates with the body. The geometry resonates just like listening to a beautiful, uh, like a Bach fugue. It resonates with you, and you don't know why it resonates, and you don't even notice it. The effect is unconscious, and this is the important work that Anne Sussman is doing. All of this is unconscious. Maybe you will Mm -hmm. see 1% that it's affecting you, but 99% it's affecting you. It's affecting your health, but you're not aware of it. You're just vaguely aware of something that's uneasy. You know, uh, in this room, I'm never happy in this room. I can never actually do any creative work in this room. I don't know why. Well, you know, we can explain why, because of the geometry. Yeah. Put put aside other things like, you know, know, bad gas smells or, you know. uh, Before I forget, let me list some other components of biphilia. So color, but (laughs) harmonious color. So you have color that is interesting, like in nature, you know, not, just overwhelming color, but interesting. That has color contrast and has color harmony. The the best place to to find this is Christopher Alexander's uh, volume four the Nature of Order, the Luminous Ground. It has a chapter on color. It's, it's the best thing ever written on color. Mm-hmm. So you have that, and then you have a detail that allows you to to um, to come up close to something, and then you have graspable handles. Mm-hmm. Because the primate, that we are a primate, we're not a machine, we are a primate that grasps things. You know, we, we live most of our life grasping things of a certain size. And if we see that in the room that we inhabit, we feel comfortable, even if we don't have to. You know, it's not just the door handle.
0: Funny, yeah.
1: But the windowsill, you know, graspable windowsill, window frame, the door frame, graspable door frame, or the ornament. You know, on top of a fireplace, the ornament that we don't have to go to grab, but the eye looks at it as soon as you go in the room and you say, "Aha! If I need to, I can grab this because it's the size of my hand." You know. Yeah. So yeah. we feel that in an emergency we can grab onto something, whereas in a minimalist room, there's nothing to grab. There's nothing the size that fits the hand. You know, even even you know even painted is a strip. Not, not, not even you know a piece of wood coming out that you can grasp. That, that's the best. But you know, even painted as a strip, you know, two inches. Wow. Yeah. That you, you know, the, the mind feels at ease because it has this, uh, this. Um, it's called affordance in in psychology. Yeah. You feel that it fits your body.
0: Yeah, I've never heard this particular one, which is very interesting.
1: I have a whole paper on it, affordance and yeah. graspable handles
0: yeah about the handles yeah affordances I, I knew like places where for example that are just the right height for sitting for example and affordance yes, for uh, sitting, yeah,
1: yeah yeah exactly you know i apologize for, no, for not explaining affordance means that the entire body feels it fits the,
0: yeah.
1: the handles is one particular affordance that has you know you grab with a hand
0: mm-hmm. yeah and uh, so color handles um are there any more
1: yeah, that is water. The presence oh, yeah. of water is is calming to the human body for reasons that we don't know. But uh, people who work in biophilia think it is uh, because of the ancestral environment that we evolved in. Ancestral environments that we needed water, and uh, water has a special um, uh, special relationships. So, for example, all the all the uh, Muslim palaces that tended mm-hmm. to be in very arid climates. Always had fountains and a little trickle that would run. You know, the 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 rulers who had money to spend would go to a lot of trouble to, to make a fountain, which yeah. is not useful, and have you know have a, a little ditch that that you can see the water run because it's so it gives such pleasure. Yeah. So that's part of the of the water.
0: Yeah, it's, I was noticing when I was in Rome. At the Trevi Fountain, I looked not to the fountain, but to the people looking at the fountain. There's thousands, just, there's an ocean of people and they're all taking out their phones to take pictures. It's crazy how just, I think the Trevi Fountain is a beautiful collection of uh, biophilic qualities because you have humans, you have horses, you have rocks, you have water, um, and it comes all together. And then you have, yeah, people surrounding. Um, I should perhaps do a video about it.
1: Yes, yes. Okay, and, and yeah, another component is curves. Mm-hmm. We enjoy curves, but the curves have to fit in with fractals, which means curves of different scales—not just one big curve, you know, curves on different scales—and they have to fit in with symmetry. So there has to be some symmetry.
0: Yeah.
1: So you know, look at village architecture in any place in the world you you choose. You know, you see some curves. Yeah. And it's no, not.
0: And why is the curve from, for example, the walkie-talkie in London? Why is that not the right type of curve?
1: Because that's a <laughs> monster, and it's it's <laughs> a curve on the giant scale, which is totally useless. We cannot yeah. relate with that curve. We relate with curves on the s- scale of the human body.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that that's often what you will see uh, then in modern architecture. Yeah, we have a curve, so it's so there are some biophilic qualities here, but yeah. So, look, yeah. look,
1: look, look. We, we said that biophilic qualities when you see an animal, when you see it, when you're next to a dinosaur, you're terrified. <laughs> it's just huge <laughs> and it's menacing. So, the walkie talkie is just one giant curve that's totally menacing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It so, is scale look. another element that we can relate to the scale of elements um, with our. They yeah.
1: have to be the scale of the human body. Mm hmm. And then those human body scales, and they go from one millimeter to two meters. Okay, so the yeah. scales between one millimeter and two meters are the scales of the human body. Yeah. Now the 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 human architect relates those scales to larger scales in the building through symmetries and fractal scaling, so that yeah. when you look at the whole thing, everything makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there? a maximum in size for buildings even when you use these proportions like human proportions to kind of subdivide a building uh, would there still be like a a maximum size of a building that you can achieve before it becomes alienating even if you try to keep it um, because for example the the St. Peter Basilica in in Rome is huge but it has relatable dimensions so uh, it's kind of it, it attracts you in thinking it's smaller than it actually is How do you look at that, like maximum scale and uh, sizing things up?
1: Well, there is no maximum scale. However, there is a uh, a practical scale, a practical maximum scale for uh, buildings that are used by humans. Yeah. So the Tour Eiffel, the Eiffel Tower, is very large, but it's you know you go up to the elevator. Just just to go to the restaurant on top and you know for the view and come down, but to actually live in a hundred-story building that's solely inhuman and it's it's, yeah. it's, it's devastating for the children. Mm-hmm. And my friends and I have been calling for actual medical experiments to be done to prove that the intelligence of children is much reduced if they are born and raised in in tall buildings. Yeah, but. Nobody wants to do those experiments because that would be devastating. Yeah. yeah. No. Now, Christopher Alexander has an old pattern from 1977, four-story limit. He that children feel most comfortable uh, no more than four stories because then you can recognize the face of someone on the window. They can recognize the face of the mother on the four-story, and the mother can recognize the child playing in front of the building from the four-story. So this is one limit, and everybody ever since it was published, say, oh, the nonsense. You know, we want to build 80-story skyscrapers. <laughs> you know, Alexander is a fool. Yeah, but, you know, look, which of the most loved parts of, of Europe? Haussmannian Paris, six stories. Yeah. Those apartments go for tens of millions. People love them. Okay, and tourists just walk in, in Haussmannia in Paris, six stories. That was the height limit set by Baron Hausmann. So there is something there,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And then now, with after the uh, 2000, um, 2001 terrorist attacks in New York City, there was a discussion. You know, we would have saved two thousand people's lives if they could walk down the stairs. It was impossible to walk down the stairs of of the world trade center physically yeah. impossible to walk down the stairs yeah. so you can go up to say eight stories and an old person can walk down the stairs in an emergency but no more yeah. than that no so look these are these are not architectural considerations this have to do with the human body how the human body you know visual connection with the outside and then walking up and down
0: yeah yeah and then you yeah. often have people saying that from urban design standpoint we need to build higher than that because we need higher densities but looking at some of the highest densities on earth they're they're in in barcelona they're in uh yeah in paris um even amsterdam you have some extremely high density areas with buildings no taller than six stories
1: exactly amsterdam and look at mumbai the ravi the slum (laughs) you know it's not a nice place but it is the economic powerhouse of mumbai and it is a slum and you have two and three story buildings maximum one yep. of the highest densities in the planet okay it's not nice it's not healthy but you have high high density with two or three stories yeah you don't need giant skyscrapers but you know but you tell that to the building industry and um, You know, they just laugh at you because they make tens of millions of dollars building skyscrapers.
0: Yeah.
1: And incidentally, you asked my friend, Dr. Nir Buras, who has studied Mm -hmm. this, and Michael Mahaffey, who has studied Mm this. Those skyscrapers that are built today are built for the lifetime of 20 to 25 years.
0: Yeah. So they need to be torn down and replaced. It is totally
1: unsustainable. Yeah. Totally unsustainable.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, I think high-rise, is a, we could do a whole episode on that, I believe. Um, but the, the added complexity um, of skyscrapers makes the cost higher and also makes the building less efficient. But that is not a problem for the construction companies. They need more money to build this. Uh, they need more money, more money to do it. So who would be in favor of having like a six-story limit city? nowadays a city
1: government that thinks long term and is immune to bribes because uh, a city government will be bribed by a construction company and a developer to allow a skyscraper and then the skyscraper is built people get their money corrupt politicians get their cut and then Mm -hmm. it is sold and the responsible parties leave and they leave the skyscraper for 20 years and then whoever has to whoever owns it after 20 years has all these <laughs> all these repair costs that are often uh, impossible and in latin america there are skyscrapers sitting empty
0: oh. well, or
1: occupied yeah. by by slum people squatters because yeah. nobody can afford to 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 fix them they're falling apart and and the slum people have moved in you know so they live there yeah. in precarious conditions you know the thing is half falling apart but they have invaded uh, these skyscrapers.
0: Yeah, yeah, man, that's a very dystopian view. Just a city full of empty skyscrapers, which have been turned into uh, vertical slums. But I mean, you you wouldn't live on the 80th floor of a skyscraper where the elevator isn't working, unless you wouldn't have to go down. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but, but yeah. you
1: know, but people uh, uh, who have invaded these skyscrapers, the abandoned skyscrapers, you know, they live as high as they can go. Yeah. You know, because they're free. So that's one dystopian image that you can... It's not virtual reality. You can go take a photo today. (laughs) There is a second dystopian image Mm -hmm. of an entire city of skyscrapers in Asia, several of them, empty, because people refuse to move there. So they have been built by the government or by some speculative Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, construction company, and they're sitting there empty because nobody wants to move there yeah and so they're yeah. sitting empty and decaying and in 20 years they're going to be bulldozed
0: yeah and it's all yeah, such a no, waste
1: and here we have responsible people blah 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 talking about sustainability and saving energy and we our society is doing this stupidity while mm-hmm. One part of society is talking about sustainability. This is the most unsustainable energy-wasting uh, activity possible, construction of, of, of these inhuman environments.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, turning back to, the, to, to uh, the health and biophilia, do you think artificial intelligence could help us make more biophilic environments in some way?
1: Why not? But we don't need artificial intelligence. We know how to make biophilic environments. Uh, what I have done in my own three papers that use artificial intelligence is to use artificial intelligence to prove to people of the importance of using biophilia. Yeah. Not to use uh, uh, AI to help us with biophilia yeah. because we, we know yeah. the rules now. Um, when we, we when we use AI programs that are programmed for design. Designing biophilic uh, environments mm-hmm. that will help.
0: Yeah, exactly. That, the that's the designer, I mean.
1: yeah. the architect, because they will do a lot of the details. Take care, you know. So instead of spending two weeks, uh, uh, the, the AI program will will, uh, will do it in one day, and give you say ten different variations, and then the the architect will choose mm-hmm. among. And, and you have a selection. So what I, what I'm saying is is revolutionary selecting, yeah. evolving the design. Where Before, for a century, what we had is the architect sitting down and drawing something without any selection, without any adaptation say, so here it is, you build it. Who cares about the user? What is possible now with AI is to generate alternatives. It's, you know, it's like genetic yeah. algorithms. Yeah. And then you pick the best one and you you have the AI redo it, which will be not cost-effective if you have uh, actual people in the office do it and generate 10 more variants. And then you choose which one is better. And then you generate 10 more and you're going to get a very, very adaptive design. That's really human.
0: Yeah. I must say there are so many amazing tools and thoughts and ideas that it is very sad that we are limited not by ideas and possibilities, that but that we're limited by building standards, by ideology, and by corruption and uh, and the status quo. Yeah. That is
1: true, but that's, that's not a question of architecture. It's yeah. a societal question. Our society yeah. has allowed this to happen.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you think, uh, maybe cl- moving towards the final question, what... What do you think we could do on a societal level to change? Again, uh,
1: again I come back to what you're doing.
0: Yeah. Education.
1: Education, letting people know who may never have heard of the wonderful possibilities for making a beautiful world today Mm -hmm. to counteract the propaganda. Again, I come back to the propaganda no, it is forbidden to build beautiful places today for blah, 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 all these stupid lies. And no, even if we wanted to build this today, it is impossible for blah, 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 again, lies. Yeah. If we can counteract those two items of propaganda, then we are on the way to to good change, healthy change. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So... um I think it's up to me then and some, I hope, other people on, on YouTube and on other social media and uh, hopefully also in, in regular media at some point. But I think we're still far from that because, yeah, even the, the first dominoes still have to fall on the internet, I believe, before they can start falling in different media environments. But I think, yeah, I'm hopeful. Do you have perhaps for the... um yeah for the audience like a final message or some sorts of other thing you would not want to share with the audience
1: yes trust your body our bodies have been zapped by images to manipulate us and mm-hmm. we have been told this image of minimalist architecture is good because it is modern because it is uh, economically uh, advanced because it's going to make us uh, into a modern society. I know it's difficult, but if you trust your body, it will give you mm-hmm. the right message. But most people's bodies have been numbed by all this zapping. So I would recommend to anyone try to get in touch with their own body. Yep. Find something that's beautiful. And then you use your body as a sensing, like a Geiger counter. Mm-hmm. Use your body as a sensor. And trust your body when it's telling you, I really love to be in this room. I really love to approach this window. And then ask yourself, what are the geometri- geometrical characteristics of the window? And then you can understand it a little bit better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a wonderful advice. And uh, I think also a beautiful way to close off this interview. Thank you so much, Dr. Salingeros. And uh, yeah, I hope to have you on uh, sometime in the future again.
1: Thank you, Ruben. It was a fascinating discussion.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of The Aesthetic City Podcast. To read Professor Salingaro's work, find the links to his books and articles in the description below. If you like her content and want to support what we do, you can support us in various ways. The easiest way is to give this podcast a favorable review. Another way to support this podcast is to share it with colleagues and friends. You can also follow us on Twitter, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or our Substack newsletter. And finally, the ultimate way to support The Aesthetic City is to become a patron. Find the patron link in the description. For more information about this platform, visit theaestheticcity.com. Thank you, until next time.